Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker, here with Luke Benke as always. Luke, what do we got for stories today? So prosecutors in New Mexico are charging Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal 2021 shooting of Helena Hutchins while filming the movie Rust. Uh, I don't pretend to be a criminal law expert, but uh, looking forward to chatting with you about that one, Jack. And uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission proposed a rule that would ban companies from requiring workers to sign non-compete provisions. Jack, what do you got? An update on the Supreme Court's investigation into the leak of the draft Dobbs opinion, which sheds some insight on not only how the Supreme Court works as an institution, but also uh, provides a, a bit of a disappointing outcome to that investigation. All that and more, here's what you need to know. First up, while filming the movie Rust in 2021, actor Alec Baldwin accidentally shot and killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Now, prosecutors in New Mexico are charging Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter. The armorer, which according to my Google search is the person in charge of weapons on a movie set, is also being charged with involuntary manslaughter. And the assistant director who handed the gun to Baldwin and told him it was cold which is an industry term meaning it didn't contain live ammunition or even blank rounds, he pleaded guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. According to Reuters, the DA says Baldwin is being charged because it was part of an industry standard for actors to check that firearms were safe to handle and to follow basic gun rules such as not pointing weapons at people. Baldwin and his legal team, of course, are pushing back on that. His attorneys say that he had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or, frankly, anywhere on the movie set. He relied on the professionals with whom he worked, who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. Interestingly, the Actors Union supports Baldwin, perhaps that's not so surprising, saying that performers are instructed to treat guns as though they are loaded with blanks, not live ammo, blanks, and rely on weapons handlers to instruct them on use, including when they can safely point a firearm at someone on camera. Now, criminal law experts, which to be clear, I am not, think that prosecutors face long odds securing a conviction. That's because if onset professionals told Baldwin the gun was not loaded, he wouldn't be obligated to inspect it himself. So on the one hand, an actor's job is not to be a firearms or weapons expert, and it's probably fair to assume, maybe it's not, but I think so, that most actors have never even fired a real gun before. They've got zero knowledge on, on handling firearms, and that's why movie studios hire armorers or prop masters. On the other, you know, my dad is a hunter, my brother is a hunter, my grandpa's a hunter. I'm not. But even I know that you never point a gun at someone, even if you know with 100% certainty it isn't loaded. So, Jack, what are you thinking? Yeah. So let's also I should note that I'm also not a criminal attorney, but I would say that let's go ahead for a second and pretend this is a civil case, um, because I think that really is illuminating if we go ahead and do that. <clears throat> uh, would Baldwin be liable for, say, negligence in this case? I would say arguably no. Um, if if it's, you know, I'm assuming we have to make a lot of assumptions here, but let's assume that the contract that he had um, and the contracts of the weapons handlers and the prop masters and all of those things all basically said what we think it says, which is that they are responsible for um, handling the props, soup to nuts, uh, and, and taking care of the things in that regard. Baldwin as an actor is absolutely entitled to rely on the representations of the specialists um, who are hired and who are being paid to make sure that there's not a live round in a prop gun. Um, so, you know, the question is, in a negligence perspective, should he 
did he know or should he have known that there was a live round in there? And, and the answer is no. And did he act unreasonably by pointing a weapon which he understandably believed to not be loaded at someone as part of a scene? And I would also say absolutely not because that's what an actor does is act out scenes and scenes involving gunfights are pretty common. So I don't think that even in a civil case, um, Baldwin would have violated a, his duty in any way to exercise reasonable care in this regard. Um, so from that perspective, I can say that with the higher burdens of proof associated with the criminal case, that this case isn't going anywhere. What do you think? Yeah, same. I mean, it's not like, you know, Baldwin brought this, his own gun to the movie set, right? I mean, you've got this armorer who is, um, you know, presumably the person who's supposed to uh, make sure these weapons are, are working properly or these props are working properly. And then you've got this assistant director who handled the gun before he gave it to Baldwin. Um, and if it's true that, you know, Baldwin was supposed to point the gun at the camera and pull the trigger, um, I, I just think it's going to be an uphill battle uh, to, to show that, uh, you know, Baldwin has any culpability here. The, que the central question here is like, what was, a, what was a bullet? What was any type of ammunition doing on the movie set such that it could even accidentally end up in a gun? You know, it, it shouldn't even been in the realm of possibilities. Like, why were there live rounds on the movie set at all so that someone could theoretically even make a mistake like this? That's just really weird to me. I don't know if I've seen an answer to that question yet. Um, you know, setting aside whether you can accidentally load a gun or not and then hand it to Alec Baldwin, um, why would there have ever even been an opportunity to accidentally do that? Yeah, that's problematic. And and what do you what do you make of the uh, the actors union position, Jack, which is, you know, look, these guys don't handle firearms or, or weapons. Um, you know, they shouldn't be held to some uh, standard, you know, to, to check these things for, for live ammunition before they're using them on set. Yeah. I, again, that's like they're hired to be actors um, and you know they're being handed a prop and being told to use it. And that's, I think, the extent of their obligations. Um, I don't think that the court's going to impose a duty to you know, be a firearm uh, expert on Alec Baldwin in this case. Up next, the Supreme Court issued a memo of its findings into the investigation around the leak of the draft Dobbs decision. And I'll start by reading the intro to the memo to you all. Quote, in May of 2020, this court suffered one of the worst breaches of trust in its history, the leak of a draft opinion. The leak was no mere misguided attempt at protest. It was a grave assault on the judicial process. To meet our obligations as judges, we accept submissions from parties in Amici. We engage advocates in oral argument. We publish explanations of our final decisions. All of this we do in the open. Along the way, though, it is essential that we deliberate with one another candidly and in confidence. That phase of the judicial process affords us with an opportunity to hone initial thoughts, reconsider views, persuade one another, and work collaboratively to strengthen our collective judgment. It's no exaggeration to say that the integrity of the judicial proceedings depends upon the inviolability of internal deliberations. For these reasons and others, the court immediately and unanimously agreed that the extraordinary betrayal of trust that took place last May warranted a thorough investigation. Unquote. So the report goes on to detail some of the investigatory ways in which the marshal of the Supreme Court 
conducted this investigation. Apparently, there was interviews and forensic analysis of about 100 employees, which, you know, I had no idea the Supreme Court even had that many employees, for example. Um, apparently, at times, they were going through their search history. I think that they were unlocking some of their phones. Most of the employees, I believe, were fingerprinted. Um, on top of that, there was uh, a an internal um, forensic analysis of the tech uh, used by the Supreme Court. And it seems as though um, there was no external breach of the Supreme Court's tech services. So that's a good thing. But ultimately, the report goes on to say that basically whoever leaked the opinion got away with it. There's some interesting mention of the court's human resources handbook, which has strict rules of of confidentiality. There's also a law clerk code of conduct, which is separated into separate canons. Um, And reactions to the investigation were collectively a mix of disappointment and kind of a collective sigh. CNN interviewed a few people, and I'll quote from that piece, quote, the lack of closure means for the moment that the controversy over the leak is more likely to end in a whimper than a bang, said Steve Vladek. CNN Supreme Court analyst and professor at the University of Texas Law School. But the bigger problem is that it does nothing to disabuse anyone of their priors, he said. Progressives will still blame conservatives, conservatives will still blame progressives, and everyone will continue to be suspicious of the other side, with the court stuck in the middle. Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law, said, It's pretty disappointing if if people wanted to find out who the leaker was. Adding the probe was useful in the sense that they pointed out a whole number of recommendations, suggestions, and ideas on how to keep the court draft opinions more secure in ways that could prevent future leaking. Carrie Servino, president of the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network and former clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, blasted the failed investigation in a series of tweets, writing that the report reflects the Chief Justice's utter failure in the administrative aspect of his role. We can only hope that a breach like this never happens again, but I fear the failed investigation and the lack of consequences for the leaker will encourage history to repeat itself, Servino wrote. Gabe Roth, whose group Fix the Court advocates for more transparency and ethical standards in the judiciary, told CNN that it's pretty clear to me that since the court was never going to find the culprit. He added, various intrusions we learned about the report, looking through law clerks' Google history, downloading their phone data and fingerprinting a few of them were unwise, unquote. So I don't really have any hot takes on this, to be honest. Um, I think it's disappointing, of course, that we don't know who did this. Um, but I think also it's maybe a relief that the culprit wasn't found. And let's consider the possible alternatives here. So what if the leaker was a clerk of one of the justices? Can you imagine the political backlash that we'd be dealing with? If it was a liberal justices clerk, for example, you bet conservative media would be calling for the first devil removal of a Supreme Court judge. And the same would be true if it was a conservative judge, obviously. Perhaps in both circumstances, that call would gain at least a little bit of traction in Congress. And can you imagine if we were to have, say, like a Benghazi or a Russiagate style hearing on the leak followed up by an impeachment trial for a Supreme Court justice? I mean, I think the legitimacy of the court has taken quite a hit in the past few years, some of which I think is self-imposed. The Bush v. Gore decision comes to mind, uh, at least in the eyes of popular culture, along with, you know, maybe Citizens United and and probably the recent Dobbs decision. And I think that finding out exactly who did this would have probably been the worst outcome of all. If I'm allowed to speculate, this is entirely speculation, but 
I do think that Chief Justice Roberts has shown in his tenure that his primary concern is protecting the legitimacy of the court. And people say, for example, that's why he switched his vote on the Obamacare decision, uh, because he didn't want the court to overturn a president's landmark legislation. It's one of the few times it would have ever done that. People would have regarded the court with less legitimacy after that. And so a lot of people speculate that's why he voted to uphold Obamacare. Um, I think that Justice Roberts is probably savvy enough to know that had he found the culprit, regardless of who it was, that would have only served to really tear the court down further. And I'm not going to say that he he spiked the investigation here. I mean, that's kind of a conspiracy tinfoil hat, but I'm allowed to speculate here. I think it's entirely possible. Um, if you ask me, I'm relieved that we don't know who did it. I think our general constitutional order um, probably couldn't take another extreme shock uh, to the system uh, that a magnitude of a impeachment trial of a Supreme Court judge would be. And by the way, you know, there's also the possibility that just because this report says they never found the person, it doesn't mean that someone wasn't identified and they maybe just dealt with it eternally. Um, so anyways, if you're interested in preserving the legitimacy of our courts and judicial review and judicial independence, I do think this is the best outcome. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I think allowing a leak to go unpunished, if that's what happened, uh, probably doesn't do all that much to preserve the legitimacy of the court and could, in fact, hurt it. I mean, if you've got justices, Supreme Court justices or appellate court judges, whatever the case may be, and law clerks, um, you know, concerned about the confidentiality of their pre-decision discussions, uh, I think that hurts the legitimacy of of the court. Right. I mean, you're. I presume, I don't know, I didn't clerk, did you, Jack? No, I didn't, no. I mean, I presume the purpose of those discussions, uh, you know, before a decision comes out, is to speak freely about how, how you think a certain decision should come down. And if so, that confidentiality, if that confidentiality isn't protected, um, you know, that's problematic. If, if, and you get this, right? I mean, if you're, if you're talking in such a way that you think, you know, whatever you're saying is going to be brought to light at some, you know, future date, you know, maybe you hold back in certain areas, maybe you don't disclose everything you think should be disclosed. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I agree generally. My only thing is, you know, if you kind of think about, you know, how we would react to like we as a, you know, body politic would react to this. And I, I think that, you know, ideally, of course, you'd love to see this person punished. Um, coming down harsh on someone for this I would, you know, at the first level, bolster the legitimacy of the court. I agree. But I don't think that we could help ourselves from imputing guilt of whoever that law clerk worked for onto that judge is the thing. So, you know, if that if the clerk worked for Clarence Thomas or or, you know, uh, whomever you pick who you want. Um, we would not be able to help ourselves from speculating and um, probably concluding unfairly that the justice was actually the one who did it, which would mean you'd inquiries in Congress, which would mean, you know, potential impeachment of a Supreme Court justice. And that, I think, is like just an outcome that is way worse than actually finding the person and punishing them. I don't know. That's that's my fear. 
Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. I, and I think you're right. What if it is something far more sinister? I think a lot of us are assuming that it was a clerk. And, and, and I guess we don't know, right? Maybe it was a clerk's spouse or friend or whatever. But what if it was a Supreme Court judge, Jack? I mean, could you imagine? That would be insane. But, you know, you got to think about what this opinion actually was and what it you know, what it could have, we don't know, we'll never be able to know this, but what it accomplished. I mean, the draft opinion was pretty dang close to the final opinion, right? It came out five months before the decision came down. You could argue that the release of the draft opinion locked the decision in. Now, you could also argue that releasing the draft opinion is what um, was a way to alert progressives of what was coming down the pipeline and kind of, you know, gear up protests, etc. I mean, there's a lot of political motivations that you can impute onto this process either way. Um, so, you know, if, again, if we're going to speculate freely here, you could leak this opinion kind of as a trial balloon to see what the press would do with it. And, you know, it seems like um, it, they were able to do that. And then, and then this opinion came out and they barely modified the majority opinion. It was, it was almost exactly the draft. That's the part that, that I think is, is, is strange. Um, so that, you know, whoever leaked this thing obviously had political motivations. I just don't know what they were. I don't know what, from what perspective they were coming from. Um, I don't think a just, I don't think a justice would do it. Um, I think that that's, but I mean, crazier things have happened in the, even in the past couple of years. So I don't know. I, uh, as you were going through your story, I was thinking to myself, I couldn't help but think, why, you know, why do we care about a leak, right? I mean, it's a decision that that uh, ended up looking a lot like the one that was leaked. What's the big deal? Um, and if it's political motivation, again, it's sort of like, well, you know, we play politics with everything these days. But the point that you just made, I think, was one that I didn't think about. What if you do have this leak and that is what you know locks that decision in? You're You're reluctant to change anything now because this has already been out you know, in the public realm for five or yeah. six months, people have reacted, people have, have picked sides. And if you're a conservative justice, you're worried about looking like you're bowing to the, the pressures of the of the media and everything. So, you you know, you arguably can't change your mind um, I, from their perspective. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, you someone could have done this intending for a lot of different things to happen. And you know, we'll never know what they were. But I mean, yeah, it's it's we're going to speculate in this for forever now, of course. But like I said, I just don't think that we politically are mature enough to handle the, the blowback of what happens if we actually found someone um, and that person and what that would do to our politics and everything else, I think, is arguably more toxic than just kind of this thing hopefully going away. <laughs> I don't know. Well, do you think this encourages leakers going forward? I mean, someone was able to do this now with impunity. I hope not. I mean, I hope they found this person, absolutely ruined their career, um, spiked any opportunity for them to go, you know, work these cushy big law firms that they all do out of the Supreme Court, you know, are going to blacklist them uh, amongst the legal community, but are keeping it all under the rug. That's that's what I hope happened. Um, I There's no possible way to know that, though. I think those are high hopes. <laughs> yeah. Next up, according to Reuters, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, 
proposed a rule that would ban companies from requiring workers to sign non-compete provisions, uh, as well as some training repayment agreements, uh, which companies use to keep workers from leaving for better jobs, the agency said. According to the FTC chair, Lena Khan, non-compete agreements, quote, block workers from freely switching jobs, depriving them of higher wages and better working conditions and depriving businesses of a talent pool that they need to build and expand, close quote. The agency estimated that if the rule goes into effect, wages to U.S. workers would rise by $300 billion per year, and an estimated 30 million Americans would have better career opportunities. Now, the rule, which could be months away from taking effect, would require companies with existing non-compete agreements to actually scrap them and inform current and past employees that they've been canceled. Interestingly, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is considering suing to stop the rule. Because this proposed rule would represent such a major change to business as usual, and because Jack and I want nothing but the best for our listeners, we've got a special treat for you today. Uh, we reached out to our partner, Jeff Glass, a labor and employment expert here at Amundsen Davis. To discuss this with us in a bit more detail, Jeff, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm great, and uh, and thanks for uh, for joining us. You're no doubt familiar with this proposed rule, so uh, why don't you start by just telling us what a non compete clause is, and maybe more importantly, what it isn't. Yeah. So, and that that is really important. The, a non compete clause. It's usually in an employment contract, and it it provides that the employee, after he or she terminates employment, can't work in the industry or for a competitor. It's usually in a geographic territory and it's usually for a certain amount of time. So it's a complete ban on competitive employment. Now, that's uh, a different thing than a non-solicitation clause. A non-solicitation clause keeps an employee from soliciting customers that they dealt with while they were with the former employer. And that's, that's more focused protection for the employer because it just protects the customer relationships. You can also have non-solicits for employees, which are kind of important these days because everybody has a hard time attracting and retaining employees. Now, Jack, this is uh, non-competes are, I, I, I think, one of those issues where you can go back and forth you know, seemingly in perpetuity, right? Endlessly. There, there are great points on sort of both sides of this uh, on the labor side of things and then on the, you know, employer side of things. Um, what is your take on uh, the FTC's rule? And do you think uh, it matters whether the company requiring the non-compete agreement is, you know, a small mom and pop shop versus say an Amazon? Yeah, I mean, so this is like the broadest of brushes that the FTC could paint with. Um, and you're, you're seeing, and this is kind of amidst the groundswell of what's happening in different parts of the country. In Illinois, for example, we got rid of non-competes for incomes under 75000 um, There's places around the country where similar legislation has been enacted. The reason being for that is because one of the most common uh, places where you will sign a non-compete is actually a low-wage job. Um, in some of the literature around this, it was estimated that something like one in five Americans has signed a non-compete at one point in their career, oh. which is 
which or one in five working Americans, um, which is, you know, probably a lot more than you and I would have guessed. Uh, it, it affects a lot of people. Now, um, to come at the federal level is a huge, huge thing. But I will say this, uh, you know, federalism and the idea of, you know, letting the states do things on their own. And it's the, uh, the laboratories of democracy, right? Like you, you kind of let the states do it, see if it works. And if it works well, you do it at the federal level. Um, arguably, the laboratories of democracy in the, at the state levels have demonstrated, you know, proof of concept here. Um, and I'm speaking specifically about California. California in their state charter has uh, what's been interpreted to be a prohibition against enforcing non-competes. Um, so in California, there are no non-compete enforceable agreements. Um, and a lot of commentators and writers on this topic have been suggesting that the secret sauce of California's economy, and remember that California were it its own country would be like something like the ninth biggest economy in the world. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, biggest economy in the United States of all 50 states. Um, a lot of people have suggested that the secret sauce of like the tech industry and Silicon Valley and all that stuff out there is that this you know knowledge among other factors of course there are high high public education and a bunch of other things um but that people can freely move between jobs cross-pollinating with all of their specialized knowledge um and you have examples of this throughout tech history i mean you have um you know, spinoffs of spinoffs of spinoffs that eventually end up being Microsoft, you know, or that end up being um, uh, Google or whatever. If if those if you took, you know, the same people, same resources and everything else and you put it in another state and then you kind of played back uh, the, the highlights there and, and you had everything play out in a state with different laws regarding non-competes, I don't think you would have um, the tech industry and the booming economy and everything else that California does. So if you're a proponent of this policy, I think you can look to California and say, well, the jury's back uh, on this. Um, we see that non-competes actually not only depress wages, but stifles innovation. It stifles, you know, American uh, dynamism. Um, and uh, it's slowing our economy growth. That would be the argument for getting rid of them. And I think it's compelling, you know, now at the individual level, which, you know, you're going to talk about here in a moment, I'm sure what happens to the mom and pops, small companies, things like that, where they have, you know, they train an employee, they invest in them and that employee leaves and goes off and either starts a competitive firm or takes their skills and, and gives them to a, a competitor. Uh, it, it's going to be tough. I mean, I think, I think ideally those scenarios will be dealt with through other mechanisms. Um, tortious interference lawsuits, trade secrets stuff, um, things like that. I think insofar as getting rid of non-competes is a very broad brush. I think that non-competes are also an extremely broad brush to use uh, against these threats of you know people going out and unfairly competing. Um, I think you could do more targeted uh, protections for these small companies. Um, maybe it would be, have to be legislative or maybe it could be via you know civil actions, et cetera. Um, but that's that's kind of my hot take on this. What do you think? So this FTC rule, though, it would outlaw non-competes. That's the most the the broadest, most burdensome type of restriction. But it doesn't include non-solicitation clauses, which, in my experience, is uh, frequently the the clause that really matters to uh, companies. 
probably what the FTC's, you know, worried about is like Jimmy John's was a famous example several years ago. They were having their drivers uh, subject to non-competes. You know, these are people that make 10 bucks an hour and it just seemed abusive, like it's going overboard. And then just some people have a kind of a gut level feeling of unfairness when it comes to non-competes that stop you from working in the industry where you know how to, where you can get employment, right? And you're banned from the entire industry, really? Even if I don't touch my former customers, even if I didn't take any information, I still can't work in the industry. That that strikes people as unfair. So that's kind of the balancing act, I guess. I mean, in these non-competes, you know, I, I, I work on these um, on behalf of uh, uh, medical professionals and I, I represent them um, and oftentimes trying to get out of their non-competes. And, you know, it often is as simple as, you know, the contract will say for a period of two years after you leave employment with us, you cannot work within a 10 mile radius of the office. And so you get a map, you put a compass down, you draw a 10 mile radius circle in it and you can't work at any competitor in that radius. Sometimes it's not a big deal because it's like rural, whatever. Um, but if you do a 10 mile radius around like the city of Chicago, for example, um, that means you can't be a physician in the city of Chicago for two years, which is crazy. Uh, <laughs> it means you have to basically relocate, you know, um, to a, a different metropolitan area. The other thing I would say about that is I really do think that there's a big difference between, I mean, you were mentioning these companies in California that are massive, right? And so I think the argument might be better for those really big publicly traded companies uh, for doing away with non-compete agreements. I think it's different when you're talking about smaller, uh, you know, maybe mom and pop shops or even medium sized businesses, um, because, you know, that really is their their livelihood. Right. I mean, if they if they make the decision to invest in an employee, train him or her up and then he or she leaves and starts a competing business, you know, in the same footprint that mom and pop are in. Well, guess what? I mean, all you're doing is training someone to put you out of business. You know, is that good? You know, I can see how a small a smaller company might find it might think it's more important to be able to use a non-compete clause um, because they might have a small sales force and a few key customers, whereas somebody like an Amazon or another huge employer, you know, unless it's a senior executive in a very sensitive position, like what what do they care? You know, if somebody just gets a job in the industry, but um, you know, like I said, it's a key thing to remember the non-solicitation of customers and employees. That's not going to, as I read the FTC rule, that's not going to be regulated. And for my clients, at least, you know, protecting the customers and the information and the employees is what they're most, they're most concerned about, not banning somebody from working in the industry. What, the, what courts will look at, no matter what the document says, is they'll, the employer has to show that they have a protectable interest that allows them to restrict somebody's employment because you're usually supposed to have, you know, freedom of employment, but you're also supposed to be held to your contracts, right? So when the court sees this type of contract, they they scrutinize it because it's a contract that limits, uh, you know, employment. And if you can show as the employer that you've got customer relationships that this employee developed because you were paying them to go out and do that, um, and that these are, you know, good customer relationships, long-term, repeat businesses involved, a court will generally enforce that. 
um, and restrict the employee. If it's reasonable, you know, it can't be for too long. But um, so the argument for these clauses is that the employer really does have important interest to protect. And then the other one is confidential information. You know, if, if you're worried that the employee knows stuff and they shouldn't be able to use it to solicit customers or work for another company, those are protectable interests. So I guess those are the arguments for these clauses is that they, that employers have legitimate concerns. And as long as they don't go overboard, courts will enforce, you know, these clauses. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hundred percent reasonable. Right. And I think that that needs, that's legitimate interest that needs to be protected. So that that's a good segue then to, to my last question for you. Are there things that employers can do to work with or around this rule? Or are you just saying that, you know, you're not so sure that this rule will be as, um, um, as maybe influential or impactful as a lot of people are making it out to be? Yeah, the main, in my experience, uh, for our clients, certainly, the non-compete seems to be going out of fashion precisely because you can protect yourself with a good non-solicitation clause, good non-disclosure provision. So that's that would be my advice to employers is, you know, do you really need a non-compete if, if they have to stay away from your customers and can't use your information? Usually the answer is no. So hopefully when this thing is, if this thing is passed and, and is upheld, this rule, um, our clients can still use non-solicitation and non-disclosure clauses to protect themselves. So as I read this, it's, you know, it's not a, a total disaster for employers, um, but we'll have maybe to maybe not as big of a boon to employees. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. It's, 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 it's a lot of States, Illinois, where, where I practice most of the time, uh, they, they put income thresholds uh, for non-compete agreements and non-solicitation clauses. So, you know, legislatures everywhere are looking at the, these things, but so far the stuff we need to, have have out there to protect the the clients or it's still available and enforceable unless you're in california or some really extreme jurisdiction when they passed the rule in illinois um which got rid of non-competes for people making under seventy five thousand, the reason for that one of the reasons there were many one of the reasons for that was it was found to have had an artificially um chilling effect on wages and so uh it was very common at the time that um, McDonald's, Burger King, you know, retail jobs, everything, basically everyone was paying the minimum wage, $15 an hour. And you would sign a non-compete, which says you're not going to compete at a, uh, you're not going to go work at a competing retail job, you know, within a couple mile radius for two years after. Now I looked, I wanted to see if, if this had ever been enforced in Illinois and I couldn't find a single example. So I don't think anyone has been sued from leaving McDonald's to go work at Taco Bell, but if Taco Bell was offering $30 an hour and McDonald's was offering $15 an hour and then someone went to Taco Bell, I think they would be sued. And so I think what it does is it basically keeps everyone from having to raise the minimum wage or to ever pay above it. And that was something that was cited in the reports around the, the Illinois rule. Um, it's, it's a, you know, I don't want to say collusion. I want to accuse these, these folks of doing something deliberately, but the net effect was kind of like kind of what, widespread wage fixing. Um, and so getting rid of that is going to allow for more competition 
Um, even at these lower level jobs that, you know, everyone thinks is replaceable. I mean, we just got out of a two year span where everyone complained that there were no service workers. So, you know, there needs to be more competition in those areas sometimes. Um, and this will allow for that. Well, as usual, Jack, your mind is thinking in chess, whereas the rest of us are thinking <laughs> in checkers. But the, the FTC, as you know, uh, is the is the federal uh, organization or group or entity that enforces antitrust law. And so don't fool yourself. I mean, that's a huge part of this. Big time, big time. Jeff, will this impact non-disclosure clauses? Here's it says that if a non-disclosure clause is so broad that it would effectively ban somebody from working in the industry, then that's considered to be a non-compete. And that's interesting because uh, if you look at most companies' non-disclosure clauses, they really cover everything under the sun. Because the companies think that if I just list all, you know, all financial information, all marketing information, as protected, that's just going to cover all my bases. And with this new rule, just one thing that I'm keeping an eye on is, you know, it does say if it's, if the non-competes, if the non-disclosure clause would have the effect of preventing somebody from working in the industry, a non-disclosure clause could be considered to be a non-compete clause. So those really broadly drafted non-disclosure provisions, which I see all the time, could be problematic if this rule takes effect. So, Jeff, before we go, uh, if anyone needs to get in touch with you, uh, what can they do? So I'm a partner of Amundsen Davis. So you can find me at uh, AmundsenDavisLaw.com. The name is Jeff Glass, G-L-A-S-S. And uh, the email is jglass at AmundsenDavisLaw.com. I'd be happy to talk to anyone anytime about this stuff. Great. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you for your time and your your expertise. Uh, We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. No problem. Anytime. Thanks, everyone. That's the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. And we'll talk to you two weeks from now. As always, if you have any thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. Leave your comments below or feel free to email us.